0: we have been considering the Lord's Prayer these last couple of weeks. When the disciples asked Jesus how to become a praying person, he taught them first of all to recognize God as their Father and to hold Him in reverence. Then he prayed For the kingdom the kingdom I believe was the love of his heart the summary of his purpose Mark tells us that when he began his ministry he said now the time is fulfilled the kingdom is at hand it is come it is here yet he wanted that kingdom to come and he prayed unceasingly for it. I say this was his prime goal because he talked about it so much. When he began to teach he referred to it frequently and if you will as an example look at those parables. Literally Dozens of parables talking about the kingdom. There is, first of all, the king. What is he like? Oh Jesus said he's like one who seeks the lost. And he told parables of the lost coin, and the lost sheep, and the lost son. This this king is one who is willing to accept the prodigal after he's squandered all that he's been given. He's one who hears prayer. And he's one who gives to the latecomer as much as he gives to the one who has been there all the time working in his kingdom. He's generous. He's gracious. He's good. You can trust him. And so we get to know the king. And then he talks about how the kingdom comes. And he said, you recall, behold, the sower goes out to sow, and the seed of the word of God is spread. Or the kingdom is like a mustard seed, as we read this morning. It grows very quietly, and it becomes a place of refuge, of peace, and of strength. The kingdom, furthermore, comes as leaven." It is inserted into a lump of dough, and after a while, it affects everything that it touches. The whole world will never be the same because the kingdom comes. And then he looks to another subject, and he tells us about the citizens of the kingdom and the aliens of the kingdom. There's the Pharisee and the publican. They go to the temple to pray. And the one leaves justified, but the other one does not. Because one is humble and one is sincere, and the other one is proud and vain. He tells about the rich man, Lazarus. The one very self-centered and insincere about himself, proud of what he has done, while the other one begs at the gate, a poor, helpless person. Who is in the kingdom and who isn't? Remember the parable of the the ten virgins. If you don't have your lamp trimmed and if you aren't watching, you will not be in the kingdom when the king comes. And then he also tells parables about the demands of the kingdom. Not easy demands. He tells about talents that were given. He says the kingdom of God is like a king who gives talents to his subject. He expects some results. And when there aren't any results, there's judgment. The king rules well, but there are demands. And he's a king of justice. Jesus tells many other parables about the kingdom. And so it isn't strange at all that when the disciples say, Lord, help us to be praying persons, he says, here's how you do it. You pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means voluntary obedience. I've joined these two petitions because I see that they're interlaced. To pray for the kingdom is to be a citizen, a loyal subject to the king. Remember the days of King Arthur, how loyal those men were that built Camelot, a source of refuge for them, something that gave them security. They lay down their life for that young king. They're like those men who, who went to answer the yin of David when he remarked as the king he would like to drink from a well behind the enemy lines. They risked their lives to bring him a drink of water. That's loyalty. If you love the king, you want to do what he says. And so the, the voluntariness of this petition comes to mind along with obedience thy will be done. Jesus came to teach us the standard of obedience, the measure of our conduct. And all who are in the king's kingdom want to live by his will and reflect his character. We know in our own human institutions how important the leader is. They say in business, whatever the chairman and CEO does is reflected down to the very bottom of those echelons of responsibility where everyone finally is unified, catches the spirit. And those who are depressing in their leadership depress the entire organization. And those who are inspirational give inspiration to all They unify, they direct, they guide. So we look to our president, and nations look to their kings, their queens. Voluntary obedience. Did you ever wonder what the kingdom would be like if it really came? What if this prayer was answered? Perhaps not as it will be one day as a reality in the new heavens and new earth, but answered for us on earth to a much greater degree. What would this world look like? And so you let your imagination run a little bit. There's employers and employees who are now loyal to the king instead of to their own peer groups or their self-interests. They're concerned about doing what's right in his sight, about serving whoever depends upon them, perhaps about a product that ought to be genuine, represented accurately, doing what it's intended to do with consistency and dependability. There's the statesman who think not of another elective period, but are thinking mainly of what the king wants to achieve through their office. Why did he put them where they are in this world? There's the medical doctor, there's the lawyer, there's the professor in the classroom that knows that he cannot teach anything that is unrelated to the creator of this great universe. This is our father's world. And all truth is related to him. That which is unrelated to him is lacking in its definition. There's the economist, the businessman who always looks for fairness, for justice. Think of what would happen in this world if the kingdom came. There wouldn't be any hungry, any homeless. defenseless. The fact is there wouldn't be any criminal courts and any prisons. You wouldn't need locks on your doors. You could do away with most of your paperwork for your word would be your bond. An agreement would be an agreement, a covenant, a covenant. And the whole world would be changed. a world of justice and compassion, of love, and of truth. What a place this would be. Every area touched by the king. Not just worship, the formalities of religious life, but all those other areas too. That's the kingdom. Jesus didn't pray that the church would come on earth, he prayed that the kingdom would come. That's a far broader concept. It includes all that we're involved in as Christian people. It's difficult to imagine, is it not? But This is Christ's prayer. It isn't ours, we didn't dream it up. It isn't part of the, of the extrapolation of doctrine by the church. It's what Jesus teaches us. Obviously not a reality, but yet a coming event. It is coming now, said Jesus. The time is fulfilled. He certainly was a member of the kingdom. You see him voluntarily obeying God. He was 12 years old. They found him in the temple, strayed from the family, returning to Nazareth. What are you doing here, Jesus, they asked. He said, I'm about my father's business. I'm concerned to be obedient to the father. He's the king of my life. He sat in a well at Sychar, talked to a woman for a time, missed his lunch. His disciples said, aren't you hungry? He said, I have meat to eat of which you do not know. It is the doing of my Father's will. That's my food. In John 5 and John 6, there are almost identical statements about Jesus doing the will of his Father. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And his exciting cry from the cross, it is finished, means it is complete. I've done it. It was a tra- cry of triumph. Christ Himself, a loyal citizen of the kingdom, the Prince of Peace, the only begotten of the Father, had now lived that life for which He was praying for the world, the kingdom come across the earth as it is in heaven. Peter and James and John all repeat their descriptions of the coming kingdom in their epistles the secret of life to do the will of the father and this issues into such a beautiful life for everyone who is obedient gives purpose Jesus found his whole purpose wrapped up in in that obedience. He wanted to do it. He pursued it. It became difficult. It became a threat. It finally led to death. But he did it. And within was that strength, purpose, and of peace. He wasn't a slave of others' opinions. In fact, they tried to discourage him. He didn't spend his life in bitterness and hatred toward his enemies. Rather, he reached out to them in love and compassion. But his greatest goal was to do the will of his Father. What a great burden of frustration and pain would be relieved for many of us if we simply wanted to do God's will each day and didn't feel that we had to figure out how to wring out of every day all that we could get because we might miss it. Time is fleeing, we say. We're getting older. What if we miss it? Well, you won't miss it if you're loyal to the king. But you may miss it. If not, like that managing editor of a newspaper who wrote his memoirs, and in it he wrote an epitaph for himself. You've probably heard some of this, but this is what he wrote. I was a member of a strange race of people, aptly described as spending their lives doing things they detest, to make money they don't want, to buy things they don't need, to impress people they don't like. That was the way he shrugged off his life at the end. What a contrast to one who puts all of the decisions of life in the hands of the Father. Just as Jesus told us, as Matthew writes in Matthew 6, Don't be worried about tomorrow and every day to come. Today, do what God wants you to do and relax. That gives purpose. It's part of a master plan. It's part of the King's program. Thy kingdom come gives purpose. It also gives pleasure. We aren't meant to be haters of men. We aren't meant to carry burdens of despair and depression. We are meant for love and joy and peace. Of all the people in this world, we Christians ought to set the standards for a deep sense of pleasure in life. For we finally know what life is about. And others cover it momentary states of excitement. Ours is a far deeper, more consistent pattern of pleasure. Just as Jesus, great sense of humor, wonderfully inspiring and attractive, such a positive thinker. He was always praying in his deeds and words, thy kingdom come did one more thing for him and for us. It gives perpetuity or or immortality. It gives us a relationship to a king who is king of heaven and of earth. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. The two are joined under one leader. And when you're a subject of that leader, then the next life is the same as this life in its loyalties and in its reality. And death means only transition, not extinction, or even unrevealed mystery. Christ knows, and he says to all of us, pray that the kingdom will come. Wouldn't it be marvelous if everyone on earth had that kind of of purpose and pleasure and a concept of perpetuity in life? we would all relax together and enjoy the leadership, the allegiance to a king. Some people would not be interested in our not. They would tell us that we ought not to bring the kingdom to bear on the various aspects of our lives. Those who believe in what they call civil liberties would rule him out. Just as they voted him out of the U.N. many years ago and they wanted to know whether they should open with prayer, they decided, no, we don't need God. We'll figure our own way through this maze, hoping to find peace and solutions to world problems. Jesus says, to enter the kingdom, you must be born of the Spirit. And Paul writes to the Romans, the kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's its source and its seat. And we haven't time this morning to elucidate all of the implications of this when the spirit is in one's life, as you know, there are other loyalties, and the kingdom is being built. Now, what I've told you, you probably already knew. Nothing new this morning, really. Reminded you of several things. But now comes the real question, which always confronts the Christians who dares to pray prayers like this, do you mean it? Do you really want the kingdom of God to come? If so, how do you explain that? Well, I think if we're serious, we're going to be far more aggressive than we usually are in our witness. We aren't going to make excuses for all the time and the energy we spend on God's business. And we're going to be very free and easy with supporting whatever he needs done. Because how is the kingdom going to come unless we work to bring it? This isn't some prayer for God to, in some mysterious way, drop out of the heavens and bring a kingdom. Jesus didn't tell all those parables about God coming and angels coming and the battle being won in heaven. He was talking about earthly matters of stewardship and responsibility and accountability at the end of this life. And you cannot escape the kingdom by saying, it's all in the future. Indeed, it is in the future, but it also is now, paradoxically. And so we ask the question again, what does this mean? It means that we are going to take a very direct position for the king. When anybody wants to know, we're going to tell them. Now, everybody isn't an evangelist. That's a gift of the Spirit. Few have that. But everyone is a witness. And everyone can seize every opportunity to speak for the king if he's really enthused about the kingdom. If we're going to pray this prayer, we'd better be honest about where we fit into the obligations to bring the kingdom. complaints and bitterness are displaced by concerns for others. Too often Christian people seem to resent their place in life, Like, like the deaf Beethoven, they die with their fists clenched, so something is wrong. With Jeremiah they confront God and say, why me? Jesus says, pray for the kingdom in spite of all you don't understand. Like Isaiah says, his ways are so much higher than ours. Work for the kingdom. Accept the king's judgment. The true joy of obedience must be part of all loyal subjects. We really want the kingdom kingdom of God to come on earth. There's something more. If we are true kingdom citizens, we're going to deal with the sins of this world, as Jesus did. There are many sins about us. Things that are costly to our society. Things that may be costly to me and to you. There were things in this world that cost Jesus. Sin, for one thing. He had to die for it. Did he ever turn to the people and say, you got yourself into it, you get yourself out of it. I don't want any part of it. Rather, he looked with compassion. He wept over those foolish people who didn't understand. And he gave himself to redeem them. That he tells us to bear whatever cross we may have and to walk in his steps, as Peter puts it. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it means, at least in one or two instances. A couple of weeks ago I preached on abortion. And I think we agree that fundamentally those who promote promiscuous abortion are standing on a different platform than we are. Their values are altogether different. But nevertheless, that leaves a million and a half abortions a year in our country. One percent of them due to rape or incest or the health of the mother. Ninety-nine percent of them are from young girls who were taught in our society that the thing to do is to be sexually active. And they fell for this immorality. And we say, away with it, it's sinful. Fine, I agree as I preach. But if you really want to bring in the kingdom, you'd better do more than preach this and believe this. Then you have to go to the poor person who is caught up in all of it and is suffering and bring them your redemptive love For it does no good to carry condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to pray, thy kingdom come. And if I can help it to come in my lifetime, I will. And he did. And he expects the same of you and of me. You know what that means? It means that if we want the kingdom to come to our little town and community here, Somebody around here who's got some money, and there are plenty of them, ought to give his house. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you could give your house. Somebody else has the skill to counsel and to love. Somebody has the time to weep with those who are caught in this web of sickness and sin. And maybe, just maybe, we could bring the kingdom a little closer to this community than just to condemn it in the church. That's what Jesus did. He went out and did what he said. And he loved the sinner and made it possible for the sinner to learn and to be redeemed because of his love and sacrifice. you dare to pray this prayer, thy kingdom come. You do it, Lord. I think when the Lord answered the disciples, he's answering you and me and he's telling us what it means to pray. And what he's saying is, if you're going to be a praying person, You'd better look out because you can't pray these prayers at no cost. For the grace of God is not cheap. And if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have tribulation in the world. But the world is going to recognize the justice and the love and the joy and the grace of the kingdom. So we pray a new sense of heart and conscience, hopefully. Touch every area of life, O God, as you bring your rule to bear On our lives. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in and through me here on earth as it is being done in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your Son. Who demonstrated what human beings ought to be like, who taught us to pray to honor you as our King. We haven't always been good subjects, we confess. We've waved our flags much too easily. Our praise has been too glib, forgive us, And help us all to ponder what it means in our own lives to say with Jesus, thy kingdom come. Amen.